This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. April is the cruelest month. Breeding lilacs out of the dead land, mixing memory and desire, stirring dull roots with spring rain. Those opening lines of the wasteland come to mind this April, perhaps it's the weather. But then again, April is not always cruel, since the month brings us the special poetry issue of The New Criterion. And David Yezzy, the poetry editor of The New Criterion, who edits the special section, and joins us now. David, as always, welcome. Thanks, Jim. David, how do you go about selecting the essays for this special section? Well, we've actually been lucky for a while to have um, sort of a core stable of poetry critics that are very pleased to uh, come up with um, essays on a range of poetry for our April issue. And um, that's a strong place to start. And then I'm constantly looking to kind of expand our ranks and include uh, new voices. Uh, and so it's been a nice mix over the years of, um, you know, new criterion uh, kind of stalwarts uh, as well as upstarts. And uh, that's, that, that's, that's a, good, a good blend for us. Well, take us through what you have assembled this year. Eric Ormsby uh, is really one of our finest uh, poets and he is writing in this April about Marianne Moore. And it's a terrific example of what can happen when a poet writes about another poet. Um, there's a mingling uh, or a resonance between the two sensibilities. And in his own poems, Eric Ormsby uses some of the same subjects and images uh, as Marianne Moore, and so there's a real sympathy there, um, particularly with regard to uh, animals and the behaviors of animals, and um, the, uh, in this case, the sort of defensive um, uh, devices that animals use to protect themselves, uh, which is where uh, Ormsby uh, takes his title for uh, the piece, um, very much kind of coming off of Marianne Moore, uh, called Armored Animal. Um, meaning both the uh, animals that Moore and Ormsby uh, write about in their work, but also Moore herself, who could be, from a certain vantage point, rather uh, self-protective. William Logan is, of course, our, uh, our poetry critic and uh, writes our verse chronicle every uh, December and June, and he has his own feature in this issue. Tell us about that. Yeah, this is a very different mode for um, Logan. Um, twice annually... Uh, he contributes uh, sort of capsule reviews, well, longer than that, what would we say, you know, short reviews, a roundup of short reviews on contemporary books of poetry. Uh, but another mode um, that William really excels in is the longer essay, the close reading of, of um, classic poetry. And um, part of a project that he's been working on now is revisiting um, uh, well-known poems uh, from fresh angles, uh, giving new insight into their backgrounds and um, meanings. And this April, he's um, doing a splendid, um, sad, uh, touching poem by Philip Larkin. And, uh, you know, the layers that, that 
he has worked into the essay in terms of the biographical background, uh, as well as um, the poetics, uh, Larkin's kind of um, use of, uh, of tones and his own um, themes of um, kind of self-deprecating um, uh, uh, sort of despair almost uh, 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 really come clear in Logan's essay and illuminate the poem beautifully. Michael J. Lewis writes about memorization, and this is a subject I feel like you've been writing about yourself, uh, and the, the title of his essay is Schiller's Bell. Tell us about that. Well, this is, for us, slightly out of Lewis's wheelhouse. Um, readers of The New Criterion will know uh, very well his uh, extremely fine essays uh, on uh, architecture. But uh, this is a splendid essay, and his point, his central point, um, which uh, Schiller, you know, uses Schiller as the example of memorizing poetry. First of all, it's it's something that at one time was very common, and now has kind of fallen almost completely uh, out of uh, favor. Uh, but from a poet's standpoint, it's indispensable, and the reason being that, um, you know. As we kind of heard at the opening of this podcast with those beautiful lines of T.S. Eliot, when you get that music into your head as a poet, um, it starts to find its way into your own work. And poems um, are really made out of other poems in a very important way. And so the more you have in your head, the more connections you can make, the more resonances you have just kind of at your fingertips, um, the richer your own writing becomes. And so, um, yeah, it's a terrific, uh, a terrific essay um, by, by a really fine essayist. The section leads off with a piece by William Pritchard, Called Department of None. Well, how'd you pick this one? Well, I, you know, I was interested in this new book by Harold Bloom um, on King Lear, part of a series that Bloom is writing about Shakespearean uh, personalities, and um, uh, Pritchard really takes Bloom to task for um, what he sees as certain um, failings in the criticism, and. Um, you know, things that Bloom, I think, has long been um, derided for, uh, you know, inserting himself into uh, the criticism personally. And um, he's written about Lear before, and so there's a way in which um, some of what he covers in this new book um, uh, is not new, um, rather maybe revisited and expanded somewhat. But... Um, uh, you don't know when you commission a piece um, where the critic is going to go with it. And um, Pritchard makes a very strong case for uh, what he feels is lacking uh, in the book. Um, you know, from another angle, it's a it's a kind of genial companion to the play for the general reader. Uh, I think Pritchard is holding it to another standard, uh, and that's fair enough. Um, Pritchard himself is one of our finest uh, literary critics, and where he sees um, the book's weaknesses in terms of um, scholarly criticism, um, we certainly uh, will take uh, a note from him uh, in that regard. It's a particularly rich section this year. The essay 
Conversions in Verses by Ryan Wilson has been occasioned by the book Faith in Poetry, Verse Style as a Mode of Religious Belief by Michael Hurley. This is an interesting piece. Tell us how you got this one. Well, I actually, as often happens at the New Criterion uh, in a small office where the editors work together, uh, this was um, a book that came across um, Roger Kimball's desk, and uh, which he passed on to me, and um, I very heartily agreed that this was the perfect subject for an essay for the April issue. Um, it's a very rich uh, topic, the place of um, uh, faith in poetry and, and, the, and the relationship of these two. Um, in the figures of William Blake, um, Tennyson, uh, Christina Rossetti, Hopkins, and T.S. Eliot. Um, you know, these are uh, these are very great uh, poem, poets for whom um, belief uh, and uh, religion were very were central to their projects, and so um, you know, a closer examination of their uh, connection and background in that material is very illuminating in terms of the work. Um, something that we're um, we've become rather distanced to, I think, um, certainly in contemporary poetry, and so um, sort of a tonic to be able to uh, revisit these poets through this lens. Translation factors in uh, more than once in the section, and Peter Filkins writes an essay called Arms and the Age, and it's uh, about an, a translation of the Aeneid. Tell us about this one. Well, for a while now... Um, uh, David Ferry's uh, translation of the Aeneid has been uh, in the works, and um, you know Ferry is really a marvelous uh, translator. So the book was much anticipated. Um, Peter Filkins um, uh, was certainly uh, watching the progress uh, of the uh, translation and put in a word to um, to write about it when uh, when it appeared. Uh, the book's out now; it's marvelous. Uh, Peter's take on it is really uh, fresh, and uh, you know he's pointing to um, uh, what makes Ferry's version um, uh, really quite wonderful and so um, very pleased to have that as well. A.E. Stallings contributes a fun piece uh, to wrap up the section called On Zanitia. Can you tell us about this one? Yeah, A.E. Stallings is a very um, interesting writer, a brilliant uh, translator, um, MacArthur Fellow, and um, extremely uh, distinguished uh, younger poet in her own right. And she lives in Athens, Greece, um, having grown up in Georgia. It's a sort of Athens to Athens trajectory. <laughs> but she uh, has been there now for many years and uh, writes um, uh, with real insight, I think, about Greece uh, for the TLS and elsewhere. And this is a, a sort of a belletristic um, essay about uh, the culture in Greece, um, its um, relationship to uh, to its citizens and immigrants, to the way that language um, uh, kind of mixes together from different cultures in this, you know, major European capital, um, you know, at a time of of real uh, struggle for uh, for the country and for uh, uh, Europe in many ways, um, and she focuses on uh, the. Uh, the, the feeling or the state of Zanisha, which she um, uh, describes as akin to nostalgia or exile, um, missing home. Uh, and of course, uh, that figures so um, centrally in some of the 
Greek epics. You know, uh, Penelope uh, experiences Zenitia when she uh, is um, uh, waiting uh, among strangers for the return of Odysseus. Odysseus himself, uh, you know, uh, weeping on Calypso's island, uh, is experiencing a kind of longing or nostos uh, for home. Uh, and all of these have kind of become um, uh, an aspect of what uh, of this this sense of, of exile um, uh, in the word uh, Zenitia. And, and her essay really captures the flavor of Athens. It's really yeah, it's teeming sort of in the way that, that Athens is. Yeah. And as with every issue of New Criterion, uh, we feature new poetry. In this case, it's new poetry translation. And um, it's by you, David. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's four poems by Josue Carducci. Now, Carducci, as you write, won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1906, the first Italian to do so. And at one time, he was the most famous poet in Italy. But now you say, quote, students develop a distaste for his poems bordering on contempt. What happened to him? Well, first of all, I should say that I, I've never before published my own poems. Uh, I think I gave myself a little bit of, a, uh, of an exemption there, them, there being uh, translations. But um, in any case, I will ask readers pardon for that. But I um, got interested in Carducci partly because um, he's so uh, vanished from the landscape. Um, he, you know, at the turn of the 20th century, um, the late 19th century, uh, Carducci was sort of a national poet. He had written um, and championed, um, you know, Italian um, nationhood and uh, the Risorgimento and Garibaldi. Now, those are not what I find most interesting about uh, Carducci, and maybe because those have become dated subjects, uh, his stock has fallen. But um, particularly late in his career, he wrote um, poems of great beauty. Uh, he was um, uh, very much drawn to uh, the classical past, to uh, classical meters, to the classical history of uh, his country. And uh, in a rather ornamented sort of now what feels, I think, uh, to um, modern Italians as a somewhat dated sort of uh, syntax wrote these uh, highly wrought, um, I think quite beautiful uh, poems about um, uh, about his own mortality, and um, uh, these appear in his uh, one of his uh, last books, um, Barbaric Odes, and um, I can read a, just a very short one um, now from from that book uh, called Snowfall. A light snow falls through an ashy sky. From the city, no sounds rise up, no human cries, not the grocer's call or the ruckus of his cart, no light-hearted song of being young and in love. From the tower in the piazza, the quinzied hours moan, sighing as if from a world far off. Flocks of birds beat against the misted glass. Ghosts of friends returned, peering in, calling to me. Soon, oh my dears, soon. Peace, indomitable heart. I will sift down to silence, in shadow rest. David Yezzy, thank you. James, thanks. 
You've been listening to the New Criterion podcast, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at newcriterion.com. I'm James Pinero. And now, turning to contemporary poetry and the second part of this podcast. In addition to the New Criterion poetry section, April marks the release of the latest book from the winner of the New Criterion Poetry Prize, an award for a book-length manuscript of poems that pay close attention to form. The 17th winner of the annual prize is Moira Egan. David, you're one of the judges for this award. What can you tell us about Moira's poetry? Well, in each year, the New Criterion um, contacts an outside uh, judge. Uh, this year, it was uh, the wonderful uh, younger poet, Erica Dawson. And um, we sift through the manuscripts in the office. Roger Kimball is also a, a judge. We come up with a short list, and then um, the three of us, as it happens, um, uh, used to be, uh, I think, five when Hilton Kramer was alive. Um, we had a few more. But um, uh, we then kind of compare notes, and we've been very lucky in recent years uh, that uh, it hasn't required a lot of back and forth. As judges, uh, we've been able to really agree uh, each year on a clear winner. And uh, certainly in the case of Moira Egan, we all felt that this was a very strong uh, and moving um, uh, manuscript of, of poems. And we're very pleased, uh, very proud to have it um, as, uh, as the 17th installment of the series. And her book is called Synesthesium. And uh, let's go hear more as we join Moira Egan for a reading from her prize-winning book. Uh, welcome uh, to our uh, annual New Criterion uh, Poetry event uh, in honor of this year's uh, New Criterion Poetry Prize winner, Moira Egan. Uh, Moira is the 17th winner of the New Criterion uh, Poetry Prize. Uh, this year selected by the final judge, Erica Dawson. Uh, also an extremely fine uh, poet. Uh, we were delighted when um, Moira's uh, uh, manuscript came into the office uh, and were struck immediately um, by its very unusual um, structure. Uh, half of the book is devoted to scent, uh, to, the, uh, to the experiences and memories evoked by perfume, uh, very much kind of in the, in, in the vein of the kind of Proustian Madeleine, and you'll hear more about that, I think, from Moira. Whereas the second half of the book quite apart from the first, and yet, interestingly, intertwined with it, is a series of ekphrastic poems uh, about the paintings of uh, Suzanne Valadon, who um, was an artist's model and painter of extraordinary accomplishment, though perhaps not as well known as many of the painters that she both knew and posed for, Degas, uh, Lautrec, um, she had um, uh, a very important relationship, certainly important um, on, from his perspective, uh, with Eric Satie, um, perhaps <laughs> the only significant romantic relationship of his life and one that he never quite recovered from. And again, you'll 
hear more about that from uh, Moira. Um, the range in this book, as suggested by the subjects, um, is fulfilled by um, the artistry and the writing, um, which is everywhere uh, present and which I know uh, that you will um, delight in now. Uh, it's my pleasure to welcome Moira Egan. David, thank you for that beautiful introduction, which just scared me more. Um, and it's so wonderful to see so many of you here from various historical periods and lovers of poetry, and, and thank you so much for being here. And I have to thank David and Erica, who was a dear person in my life, and she, she let this fact be known yesterday, that the weird thing is that Erica's grandmother was my sixth grade science teacher. Um, and uh, in Maryland. And the first time I saw Erica Dawson, I looked at her beautiful eyes and I thought, oh, but they look like Mrs. Dawson's eyes, because I didn't know Mrs. Dawson had a first name. Turns out that it was Gloria, and it turns out, hi, that um, she died a couple of years before Erica was born. So we have this very meaningful connection that I knew her grandmother and she didn't, and her grandmother was a badass. This does not come as any surprise to anyone who knows Erica. Um, so, and, and to Roger Kimball, um, I want to I say thanks as well. So I, I'm just going to read a couple and do some explaining. So I consider the smelling poems also to be ekphrastic. Um, it, not, in, not in the typical vein, but a, a parfumier sits there and thinks, what is the formula going to be? How is this, what is the structure? Um, and so what I tried to do with this part, which was actually really fun, your muse is like this. Um, and I tried to use the language of the notes in each perfume, and um, it, was, it was actually a lot of fun. So I'm just going to go back and forth between a, a smelly one and a painting one, and, and then we'll have more wine. So the first poem in the book is called Magnolia Romana. The girl has never seen such plants and trees, the swaying pointy cypresses, the lemons with their shiny dark green leaves and fruit as big as fists, the fragrant basil in the garden near the lotus pond. Those blossoms, pink and white, so orderly mystify her. How roots can delve so deep in mud. To sink into it, squelch and play, she longs. Another day. For now she knows to keep her shoes pristine, the years unsullied, till that white-hot urge will waft like sweet magnolia on the breeze. She'll hold the flowers to her face, Estival, greedy love nests in the back of fields or barns where slivers of sunlight warm the cedar planks. Forever she'll perceive the scent of hay as aphrodisiac. Um, so moving to paintings and drawings. Oops, I didn't mark it right. Oh, Myra, you're a disaster. I do want to tell the little story of why, um, well, Perhaps we know the name Maurice Utrillo, who was the son of Suzanne Valadon, and, well, gee, is it because he was the son of her that he became more well-known and still is? But th this next one, she, she had such an interesting um, empathy with children. So the drawings and paintings of children are like very few others that, that you see. Um, well, she was a mom, but she was also a mom 
whose mom never told her who her father was. So Suzanne was born in a, in a village outside of Paris because um, this guy went passing through and suddenly there was this baby, this beautiful little baby, and mom said, uh-uh, this is not good, we're going to move to Paris. So they moved to Paris. And um, mom continued her career as a washerwoman. And little beautiful Suzanne, her name was Marie Clementine, but she changed it to Suzanne. She worked in the circus. She worked in a florist shop. She worked in a bakery. She fell off a horse, so she could. So she started modeling for artists whose names you know, you know, as one does. Um, and then she suddenly got pregnant, and as one does. And and the thing was. Um, so, well, we don't know who the father was. So there's this wonderful apocryphal tale told by Diego Rivera that here's this baby, this cute little baby. And Suzanne says, oh, merde, what am I going to do with this little baby? So she goes to Renoir and says, hey, Renoir, this is your baby. And Renoir says, no, no, the lines are all wrong. And she goes to Degas and says, Degas, this is your baby. No, no, the colors are all wrong. So she goes back to the cafe where Miguel Utrillo, a Spanish artist who was in town, was hanging out, and he said, oh, Suzanne, I would be honored to sign my name to anything that Renoir or Degas may have created. So call him Maurice Rufino. And so that is the apocryphal tale of how he got that name. He also, one more little, before I then read this thing that is a villanelle, for those obvious reasons, he was a colicky baby, little Maurice. And his grandmother, who was his primary babysitter, when he would get colicky, she would just give him whiskey because that's what you do with a six or seven year old. So by the time he was about nine, he really was a, a violent, raging alcoholic. So what did Suzanne do? She taught him to paint. So that brought him some sanity and some, some life. And that's all I need to tell you. So this poignant little drawing in French is Maurice Utrillo, enfant nu debout, jouant du pied avec une cuvette. So it's little Maurice standing naked, playing with his foot with a little bowl. So he's like, this really poignant, from 1894, and here is this Villanelle. Okay, sorry about the long intro, but you need to know these things. I want to tell him that I know the ache he feels, the gnawing emptiness, like hunger or a thirst that can't be slaked. It's difficult, those mornings when he wakes from hot, disordered dreams that mar his rest. I want to tell him that I know the ache, the looking glass become a muddy lake of roots obscured, of pure unknowingness, of hunger and a thirst that can't be slaked. It breaks my heart, the jokes the children make, that small angelic face cast down in sadness. I want to say I understand the ache. He plays his strange distractions and I take some comfort that he's soothing loneliness, the hunger and the thirst so hard to slake. But I can't tell him, is it a mistake to hold this secret tightly to my breast? I want to tell him that I feel the ache, the hunger, and the thirst that can't be slaked. And the dot, dot, dot there is that, of course, she never did. So we don't know. But it was probably something <coughs> artistic, given the immediately sophisticated production that he did. And so speaking of... Um, caretaking and parenting and even mentoring. I'm going to read um, an elegy. So in the smelly part, there's a series of elegies. The section is called Jardin des Poètes. 
It's a series of elegies for poets who, um, Mark Strand is in it, Seamus Heaney is in it, um, James Merrill who died a while ago, but um, as some of you know, I have a close spiritual relation with him and the Ouija board. My father is in this section. Cynthia MacDonald is in this section, who was my professor at Columbia. Uh, and she taught at Johns Hopkins, as you probably know, and at Houston. And speaking of badass, she was a badass. And a lot of people who studied with her don't have such fond recollections as I do. And for some reason, I do. She was very kind to me and very helpful. And she was also my professor when just after my father died. Um, and she gave me some really good advice about being a poet. This is a strange perfume. It's called lamp black. The stuff that's in it, the notes that are in it, like asphalt and tar, they're in there. Um, and the idea of lamp black, the, the ink that's made from kind of soot. But then the, the citrus notes that add a sparkly synesthetic note. Um, so anyway, this is for Cynthia MacDonald. Lamp black. A hurricane knocked out our power once. Those weeks I read by oil lamp, wrote till late, and dreamed of Mary Roth and Dickinson. The smoke curled up and left a smear of soot. She told me that the poets who were blocked are those who could not play as children, maimed. Too well I know you can't turn back the clock. Ergo, adulthood full of tricks and games, stiletto skipping down Manhattan's walks, no crack, no break, no back, encased in latex, that orchidaceous rubbery bouquet, the glitter of the night street, glass in asphalt. <laughs> Tonight the sky is black and pepper crisp. The moon has never seemed so spherical, blood orange or rufous grapefruit, which the eclipse dissevers, slice by slice, methodical. Well, and I guess the last one I should read is the portrait of Eric Satie, um, who, um, yes, <coughs> became a hoarder. No such word in French in that era at all, but when he died and they went through his atelier, they found that beautiful portrait of him that you've probably seen and that you probably didn't realize was painted by Suzanne Valadon. Um, after she left him, broken-hearted and alone, full of lots of abstract nouns, which I will mention in just a second, he, he wrote vexations. Um, so next time you're feeling blue or feeling like, wow, things could be a lot worse, listen to vexations for eight hours or so. <laughs> because you can. <laughs> right? <laughs> and <coughs> I have said, I want to say that as a teacher of poetry, I very much discourage my students from using words like loneliness, emptiness, and sadness, especially in a concluding <laughs> rhyming tercet. But I'm quoting from the letter that he wrote to her after she left. So you know, we'll just have to feel all poignant about that and pardon my use of the abstract nouns. <coughs> so this is the portrait of Eric Satie from 1892-93. How to love a younger man look deep into each other's eyes, cyan, then show him what to do with his hands, so eloquent on that other instrument, but totally unpracticed on a woman. Praise his eccentricities, the waxed mustache, the pince-nez, his top hat and his constant costume of black. 
make it clear you understand that his surface is just his visible core and that his mark on the world will be indelible. Suffuse each kiss on those full red lips, almost womanly in their voluptuousness. With all the tenderness of knowing already that when you go, you will leave him with such sorrow, with nothing but an icy loneliness that fills the head with emptiness and the heart with sadness. So on that cheerful note. <laughs>